Beginning in verse 15, we're going to read down just a little bit further than we will cover this morning, but to see it in its context. Paul says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he, was ra- when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And he put all things under him, under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for what you have made known to us. We confess that it is living and active. Father, we pray you would use it to edify the saints, to build us up in the faith, and that you would also use it to bring the lost to faith in Jesus Christ. We commend this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So what we've done in this first chapter is we've moved from praise founded upon doctrine to prayer founded upon need. Everything that Paul writes in those first 14 verses are founded upon the doctrine of salvation concerning Christ and what he has done for us. He finishes out the first chapter now with a great prayer that is based upon our need. We need to, by faith, embrace what Paul has written in the beginning of this chapter. And that's exactly what he prays that we will do. It's interesting, isn't it, that he unfolds all of this so intricately, so delicately, so clearly. And then he prays. That the Ephesians and then us, by virtue of time, that we would come to understand the things that he has written in the first 14 verses more and more and more and more. He says in this prayer that we're going to study over the course of the next several weeks, that he prays that we would be made more fully able to apply the great truths of the first 14 verses. That we would see them more clearly. The imagery that he uses there is that our spiritual eyes would be opened and made more vibrant and enlightened to see all that God has done for us in Christ. He prays that our hope would increase. That our hope would rise. That our understanding of the riches of Christ and our inheritance with him would be more full and mature. He prays that we would be humbled. And thankful to know that the Father has worked as miraculously in us, in our conversion, as when he raised Christ from the dead. 
That's just a little pretaste of where we're headed. And I want you to think about that last point. I don't know that we often equate the same spiritual power operative in us in raising us from the spiritual deadness that we are in. That the corresponding power is what the Father in Christ used in raising him in his own resurrection from the dead. That's the greatness of our salvation. To summarize this prayer, Paul knows that our need is great. And he is praying that we would continually and rightly apply these glorious truths of salvation. Having the doctrine itself is not enough. It needs to gain an entrance into our heart. It needs to move from here to our heart. That's why Paul is praying like he does. He didn't negate to set the doctrine down. And I think his order here is is certainly right. Doctrine first. Then it moves through prayer and the Spirit's work into our heart. And it really then sets us ablaze unto the glory of God. So let's... As we study this prayer, let this be our own prayer. That the Lord would do these things in us. That we might not just live with a a cold and rigid doctrine. But that we might take those things and the Spirit of God in us would use them for His own glory. So let's look first at the reason why Paul prays this. And we're going to spend our time this morning just in these first two verses of this paragraph 15 and 16. Notice the first word. This may very well be one of the greatest therefores in all the Bible. Because it points us immediately back to this great string of words that details us the Father's activity, the Son's activity, the Spirit's activity in our salvation. But if we shrink it down to even even less in verses 13 and 14, if we apply this first word to just these two verses Let's read those again, because because Paul is here talking to the Ephesian Christians themselves, Gentile believers. And he says, in him, in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And if we don't skip a beat and move right over into verse 15, therefore, based upon these truths, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So really there are two things here that caused Paul to Go into this great prayer for the Ephesian Christians. And they are faith in Christ and love for all the saints. But before we get there, notice Paul says, I've heard of these things. That's caused confusion to some because Paul himself ministered in the Ephesian church for about three years. But a modest estimate would be that at least five years had passed between then and the time of his writing. 
which in the space of five years, as the gospel is preached, numbers of people, hundreds even, could have come into the church and not have been known by Paul. And so it's not wrong for him to say, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, it has sparked in me this occasion to give thanks and praise to God for you. Notice the joy that he had upon hearing that there were those who once did not have faith in Christ, now have faith, and once who did not have love for the saints, now have love. I wonder if this would cause us to, without ceasing, thank God in our prayers. When we hear that someone else has come into the fold of Christianity. The scripture tells us that there is joy in heaven when just one sinner comes to faith in Christ. The fanfare that is pictured when Christ is seen to be Lord to another. To a once lost and wandering sheep. This is not lost upon Paul. He says, when I hear of it, when I heard of it, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul understood what we understand and Lord willing increasingly, increasingly will understand. And that is salvation is miraculous. It is an end time miracle of God in time, not in time. It is an end-time miracle of God. When anyone comes to faith, be it a child, a teenager, an older person, it doesn't negate the truth or the fact that a miracle has occurred among us. And I'm looking forward to getting down to that verse that I've already reread for you about the working of the mighty power of God in us who believe. And it corresponds to... The power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. God forbid that we ever take for granted the salvation of a soul. God forbid that we ever think in a mundane type of way of how great it is when one comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The full scope of biblical revelation tells us that One that comes to Christ has come out of darkness to light, out of sin now to life, out of being an object of the the eternal damnation of God now to being an object of his eternal mercy and grace. So it's no wonder that Paul, having understood this better than most, says, when I heard it, it caused me to break forth in prayer, prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord on your behalf. So let's look more closely at what he heard. He, he brings up the what we can call the twin graces of faith and love. They're born together. They're not identical. But where one is, the other is to be found as well. That's why we call them twin graces. Faith and love. But notice the way that he phrases these. Faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the object of our faith, the object of the Ephesians faith was the Lord Jesus Christ. And love, 
the object of the Christian's love is all the saints. While faith and love are not one and the same, they are never found in isolation from one another. And here I'm speaking of true faith and true love. Faith in Christ results for love for all the saints. Notice that qualifying word, all. There are some saints that are easy to love. They're humble. They converse with you. They encourage you. They edify you. They build you up. There are some saints that are not so easy to love. That's where forbearance comes in. We're going to talk about that more later. But for now, just notice that Paul says, your love for all the saints. And it's as if he's saying here that our vertical relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ works itself out horizontally to one another. And so the implication is here, one who has faith in Christ will have love for all the saints. And perhaps you have a note in your Bible that would tell you that the word love here is not found in many of the oldest manuscripts. Well, if you don't know this, you will now that the book of Colossians is a parallel or a mirror of Ephesians. You can almost trace it. If you were to outline it, you can almost see everything that Paul addresses in Ephesians is found in Colossians. Only in Ephesians, it's, it's much more words, much more detail. And so this word love is found in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And so we need not doubt the rightness of it being here. And that Paul is indeed referring to these two twin graces of faith and love. And that where one is, the other is necessarily there as well. Our vertical relationship with Christ works its way out horizontally so that the scriptures tell us this. And these are words from John the Apostle in his first epistle. Which if you haven't read the first epistle of John in a while, put that on your next to read list. Because that epistle works through several tests that prove the genuineness of our faith. And one of the tests that rises to the surface is that of whether or not and to what degree we love other Christians. John doesn't mince words. He doesn't leave things unsaid and to leave us questioning what he means. In the fourth chapter in verse 20 all the way through the first verse of chapter 5, he says this. And notice how plainly he says it. If someone says, I love God. And hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him. That he who loves God must love his brother also. And then in the first verse of chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. What is John saying? 
If you profess faith in Christ, then you're going to love those who also profess faith in Christ. We're going to talk about what the word love means, but here we'll just leave it at that. A Christian who is professing faith in Christ is also one at the same time who is loving his brother. All of those things in the New Testament that tell us how to relate to one another. All of those one another passages, weep with one another, rejoice with one another, pray with one another. All of those things are the ways that we work our love out toward and for each other. But I want you to see how these two things necessarily come together. What I mean by that is that when we profess faith in Jesus Christ, what that immediately does is it separates us from the world around us. We're distinct. We are called to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. Our appetite for worldly things is to grow less and less. We're to mortify the deeds of the flesh, put them off. So faith in Christ, though it doesn't take us out of the world, it leaves us in the world. Nonetheless, it separates us from those around us and our culture. But notice what goes into its place. When we have love, when we have love in Christ for our brethren, then that brings us together with another group of people, unites us together while we still live in the world. You see how gracious God has been? When there's faith in Christ, there's love for the brethren. Faith in Christ is going to drive you further and further and further away from the world in practice, not in love towards them and preaching the gospel to them, but in having an appetite for the worldly things. Faith in Christ is going to separate us more and more through sanctification. And so that we don't live off on an island isolated somewhere by ourselves, the twin grace comes along. And when when there is faith in Christ, there is love for the brethren that unites us back to a group of people who we now have real fellowship with. And that real fellowship is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while we're separated from one, we are pressed into the fellowship of another. That's why I say and why the scriptures bear out that these things always come together. And as I think they rise on an equal plane, the more we express our faith, because the word here I don't think is confined to just the initial belief that leads to salvation. The word here is the same as that which is found in Galatians 5.22, being a fruit of the Spirit, and is there translated faithfulness. So we could read it that way. When I heard of your faithfulness in or toward the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I gave thanks to prayer for you. And so I believe they rise on an equal plane. The more faith we have in Christ, the more trust, then also the more love we have towards the saints. Because we have this great salvation in common. So let's look at these two words individually now. Paul says, I heard of your faith. 
What does it mean to have faith in Christ? That's a word that we use so often. Sometimes it's good to stop with something that is common and just give it a definition. And again, we can look at this in one of two ways. This is either or the initial faith that is placed in Christ and to salvation, or it is referring to the faithfulness that the Christian walks in the rest of his life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll, we'll talk about both. Faith can be rendered belief, trust, but here in this context it is the faith in Christ and no other as concerns salvation. If you have really, and if I have really put my faith or your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what that means is that I am trusting in nothing else. I am trusting in no one else. And so if someone were to pose to you the question, what is your hope of eternal life? If there is any mixture of anything other than my sole faith and trust and belief in Jesus Christ and what he has done for me, then we have not answered the question in a biblical way. Certainly we have no grounds to have the expectation of eternal life at all. Faith in Jesus Christ is exclusive. There is no room to add any measure of anything else. It can't be faith plus my works. It can't be place faith plus my morals. It can't be faith plus the things that I don't do, the people that I know, the upbringing that I had, my parents, the church that I'm in. It can't be faith plus any of these things. It has to be casting your all upon Jesus Christ and him alone. And trusting in what he has done for you. Is that where you are this morning? Is that a definition of your faith? If you were to say to someone, yes, I have faith in Jesus Christ. Is this what you mean? Do you mean I have cast my all, my entire hope upon Jesus Christ and what he has done for me? That's biblical, saving, genuine faith. But if the word means faithfulness. When you say, I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you clinging to him for everything in life that you need? When your reason and your logic just tells you that things aren't going to make it in your favor, do you still come back and are you driven back to faithfulness in Christ? Press on, put the other foot, put one foot in front of the other The phrase that we hear so often, do the next right thing in faithfulness to him. That he is doing for you exactly what he has said he would do. Leading you, guiding you, providing for you, helping you, sanctifying you, having justified you. I like the way John Gill puts this. And if you don't recognize that name, John Gill was Spurgeon's predecessor. He's not as well known as Spurgeon, but Spurgeon himself said of him that he always consulted what John Gill had to say in his commentaries before he entered the pulpit. So high praise, no doubt. 
John Gill says this, the grace of faith. What is it? It is faith which terminates upon Jesus Christ. It is a faith that sees him for who he truly is, the son of God, the lamb slain. It it is a faith that beholds his glory, a faith that is filled with grace, a faith that goes to him repeatedly and a faith that ventures all upon him, a faith that lays hold of him, embraces him, commits all to him, leans upon him, depends upon him, lives entirely upon him, walks with him. This is the faith that is in view here. This is the faith of which Paul says, when I heard of it, when the news came to my ear again, it caused me to break forth in praise to God. But then he uses this other word. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and and your love for all the saints. The word here, love, is the familiar agape word. It's the word that tells us that we are to love one another as we have been loved. Sacrificially. With humility. It's a love that seeks to give before seeking to receive. It's a love that puts others' interests before your own. It's the love that Jesus commanded of his disciples. And he said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also must love one another. Do you remember the reasoning that he attached to this? Every church wants to be a beacon. Every church wants to be a lighthouse. Every church wants to hold fast the word of God. Every true church wants to hold fast the word of God and be used of God to bring others into the faith. That is our desire, is it not? And Jesus said, as he closed that new commandment, he said, by this, by your love of one another, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. So what is the the mark or the evidence of a Christian? One of them, if not the signal mark of a Christian, is love. And notice what Jesus says of this. When you are loving one another, when we are loving one another, as we are expected in the scripture, that that is taken note of and evidenced by those outside, all will know that you are my disciples. Because of your love. It's interesting here that Jesus, it's interesting as to what he did not say, would make the fact that they were his disciples evident. He didn't say it's that you stay away from certain places or, or that you didn't partake of certain foods or certain drink or certain company. He says it's the fact that you love one another. Again, we can appeal to 1 John chapter 3. John goes so far as to say if this love is not evidenced in your heart and in your life, you're not Christian. Again, strong words, but nonetheless, 1 John 3.17, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need. This is not some stranger that John's speaking about. He's talking about a brother in Christ. 
If you see your brother in need and you close or shut your heart up from him, then how do you expect that the love of God is truly abiding in you? Because faith in Christ brings the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God produces fruit in our lives, one of the chief of them being love for one another. And again, love that seeks to give before receiving. Love that puts others' interests before your own. And notice how all-encompassing this word is. I gave some thought to this this week. This is to define the relationship of Christians through every season of life and through every season of church life. It begins with the joy of hearing of one another's conversion. It begins with hearing the testimony of grace and how the Lord brought you unto himself. I don't know about you, but I can't hear someone's testimony without just being thankful on their behalf. And joyful on their behalf and being reminded that, yes, indeed, God is a God of mercy and grace. So this love begins there. This is where it's easy. This is where it's filled with the right kind of emotion. The right kind of response. But this love begins in this joyous season and it persists all the way through. To the end and very often ends in forbearance. We don't often think of it this way, but when we rejoice with one another, weep with one another, pray for one another. Yes, we are loving one another. But how about the scripture's admonition to forbear with one another? That's an expression of our love as well. That's a commitment. That Christians living together in the church of Jesus Christ make to one another. Brother, sister, I am going to love you. When you're easy to love. And when it's hard for me to humble myself and love you. Because we recognize that we can be just as unlovable at times, right? It's not always best to look out there and see problems. It's best to start here. It's not always best to say, yes, I'm going to be the type of Christian that forbears with my brethren. But we need to be humbled and thank God for those Christians that love us and forbear with us. Through our sin against them. Paul here is not painting a a pie in the sky type of picture. The rest of this letter, he is encouraging, admonishing love towards one another, especially in the fourth chapter. So what Paul sees here in, we can say, in infancy, he goes on to encourage To admonish towards more of the same. So it's not enough just to have at one point in time have have faith in Christ. But there is faithfulness. 
It's not enough just to at one point in time have loved your brother or sister. But there is persistence in that love. So much so that the relationship that the two, the three, or the however many is involved is doing exactly what Jesus said it would do. It is evidencing evidencing to those around you that you are indeed one of his disciples. Because the choice to love one another through thick or thin, good times, hard times, is one of the marks that Christ places upon his people. It begins in the joy of conversion and it persists all the way through to loving forbearance. Don't you know this to be true? Some people, if this is not true in all relationships, it may be. The more you know, sometimes the harder it is to love. It's easy to have a surface type love for the brethren when you don't really know them. I'm not saying we shouldn't have that. We should. We should have an immediate fellowship with them. But what about that brother or sister that you've known for a decade or decades in the church? I'm not talking about your your spouse or your children. There's a different dynamic there. But I'm talking about that person that you've known for years in the church and that they know you. Are you willing and able to overlook their faults and forbear with them unto the glory of God? And vice versa, them to you. Far too often and sadly, those relationships end with a separation. It doesn't necessarily have to be so. The grace of God is sufficient for all of the difficulties of relationship within a local body. I mean, the same person that writes this, Paul is the same one that tells us in other of his epistles how difficult this can be. I implore Euodia and Syntyche, this is what he writes in Philippians, I implore you, be of the same mind. I've heard that there are divisions and schisms. I implore you, I beg you, be of the same mind. Why? Because he understood as Christians love one another and they are known for that love, then they bear a faithful and true witness both to themselves and to those outside. How much damage have we done to the cause of Christ by our actions towards one another that very often end in less in glorious ways. So these are the two words that Paul says that have caused him to give unceasing thanks and praise to God. When I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. This is the expectation. And in recent and coming weeks, we'll look at this great prayer, which I don't know how it's actually laid out on the page on your Bible. 
But mine is so situated that in one column I have verses 3 through 14. All of these great doctrinal truths. And in the other column I have verses 15 down through the end of the chapter that tells us to live in light now of these great truths. And to pray that the Lord in mercy and grace would take all of this truth and drive it down to the depth of your soul. So that it has a real impact in the way that you live. And it ends in verse 22. With Christ being the head over all. I'm going to give you one thing here in closing. And this comes from R.C.H. Linsky. He's commenting here on the order. And how this is not a haphazard ordering of faith in Christ and then love for all the saints. And he says basically here that we can't get these things out of order. He says we cannot raise fruit without having the tree on which it alone grows. What does he mean by that? We cannot expect to produce the fruit of love towards one another unless that fruit is growing on the tree, the peculiar tree of Jesus Christ, which alone produces it. If we expect to have the fruit of the Spirit in genuine, then we will have the Christ that produces those fruit. If we attempt to have the fruit and know Christ, we'll be frustrated at every point and at every turn. We'll be left asking the question so often of why we fail. And the reason can only be attributed to that these fruit are growing on the tree of me. (laughs) And the tree of me will, given time and opportunity, wither and die no matter how often you revive it. But if those fruit are growing on the tree of Jesus Christ by faith, then the scripture tells us that we are sanctified further and further, and we produce more fruit, some 60, some 40, 60, or 100-fold. May that prove to be true in us. May God grant this kind of saving faith that works itself out in true, real, genuine love one to another. Amen. Father, we thank you for these words again today. We pray, Lord, that you would use them for our good. They would not just be words that we see on a page, but you would drive them into the depth of our heart. That the spirit of truth, the teacher, would come alongside of us and show us the glory of these things. Lord, help us not only to have faith in Jesus Christ, but a real love for one another, thereby evidencing to all around us that we are indeed your disciples. We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.